Good morning. Well, today kicks off a new 10-week series on our favorite biblical characters. And the Old Testament has a huge swath of characters, and they're really developed. There are a great number of them just today. Jacob, he is our man today, and he takes up almost half of the book of Genesis. In the New Testament, there are just as many characters but they're not as developed. You have pastors that crop up here and there. Pretty much New Testament, you have Jesus and Paul. And Jesus has four books about him. He has a bunch of books about him, but four main books about his life. Paul wrote 13 books of the New Testament. So we have a lot of different characters to choose from. And today we're going to look at Jacob. One of the ways that the biblical authors talk about God is they talk about whose God he is. He's not just some far-off deity. He's somebody's God. And over and over again, God is called the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and Jacob. God refers to himself in this way. He does it in the book of Exodus when he's giving the Ten Commandments and the law to Moses and the people. The prophet Elijah addresses God by that very name more than once. The New Testament authors refer to God as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Peter does it when he's preaching on the temple porch. And Jesus even refers to God as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob when he's being confronted by some Sadducees. Time and time again, God is referred to or refers to himself as a similar way. He's somebody's God. And it gives us a really important insight into the kind of God our God is. He's not some divine being who's distanced himself from us. He's not a creator who did a week's worth of work and then disappeared. If there is one theme that runs throughout the entire Bible, despite many different authors over hundreds and hundreds of years, it's that God desires a family. And somehow or another, he will get the family that he wants. But he refuses to twist anyone's arm to make them an adopted child. If you're a mom or your dad, you can't be a mom or a dad without one condition. Children. God is not a God who lives up there in the stratosphere, but he is our father. And he is the father of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. It's a very intentional way of addressing God. It gives a very distinct attribute to the kind of God that we serve. God's view of us is that we are his children. We talk a lot about God, about us viewing God as a father. But a lot of people had a very different experience of their earthly father. So it's just as important that we remember God views us as his children, and he wants more children just as important as it is that we view God as our father. So enter Jacob. Talk about a guy with some daddy issues. Basically, his story up to this point goes a bit like this. His brother Esau, he was the gruff, outdoorsman kind of guy. Type A, loved to be on the hunt. He got his thrills from the hunt. One of the weird details that Genesis even gives us is that he was born really, really hairy. He's the kind of guy who could spend days out in the wilderness looking for the biggest animal he could find to bring home to cook and eat with his family. He's the kind of guy today 
who drives it around with four shotguns in his truck and tells what time it is by what kind of animal he can hunt. On the other end of the spectrum, you have Jacob. Jacob is the kind of guy who gets recharged by the finer things in life. He doesn't need to say a lot of words for him to think he got his point across. He's someone who likes settling down in life. He thinks that's a good thing. A good book and a warm drink are right up Jacob's alley. So the wild nights and the long week hunting trips with friends that his brother enjoyed, those weren't things that recharged Jacob and made him who he was. So take those two extremes, take Jacob and Esau, put them under the same roof, mix in a little parental partiality, and you have a cocktail for trouble. See, Jacob and Esau's parents were actually very, very typical of parents. And of course, parents will never say that I have a favorite, right? But we all know you do. It's okay. You can admit it. In this case, uh, Jacob was very close to his mother, Rebekah, and Esau was very close to his father, Esau. Natural inclinations are just to, to connect the one kid more. It's not so much favorites as it is just like goes with like. And such is the case with Jacob and Esau. Jacob and his mother, Esau and his father. However, Esau was born just a few minutes before Jacob. And Esau was supposed to get the majority of the inheritance that his father would give up, Isaac, when he passed away. It's not that different from today's complicated estate settlements. It's just that it was set up culturally. It was just assumed it worked this way in that day and age. In this case, Esau got at least two-thirds of everything Isaac had, and Jacob was left with no more than one-third. Maybe more so than today, but the birthright, the birth order, was everything. And if you got that, if you got the birthright, you were set for life. Once your father died, you didn't have to work another day. The problem was that their mother, Rebecca, didn't want Esau to have everything. In fact, her kids were twins, and she had a really, really, really difficult birth. She prayed and prayed and prayed, God, why is it like this? Why do I have so much pain? In the midst of her pain, she has a vision. And God says to her that she has two very different uh, young men in her womb. One child will be stronger, and the older child will actually one day serve the younger child. Then when they were born, Esau arrived first, but Jacob, not to be outdone, had his little hand wrapped so tightly around Esau's foot that they called him Jacob. And Jacob in Hebrew means he grasps the heel. Imagine that being the connotation for your entire life. You're called the heel grasper. You're always one step behind your older brother. That's how Jacob lived his whole life. So one day, their father Isaac knows that he's coming to the end of his days. He's about to die, and it's time to appoint a new head of the family. The birthright has already figured out who will get most of his stuff. But as far as who will be in charge, who will take ownership, who will be my power of attorney kind of thing when I die. And because Esau was his father's favorite, Isaac just assumed that Esau would take over when he died. As the natural heir, Isaac wanted Esau to take the lead. Then one particular day, 
Isaac comes in from a long hunt, a week-long journey, and he is exhausted. He's famished. He throws the door wide open. He staggers down to the table and throws his bow and arrow on the floor. And Jacob's in the kitchen cooking. And Esau, naturally, begs Jacob for some of what's on the stove. And Jacob, who's quite cunning and very intelligent, says, sell me your birthright. Now, common among guys like Esau, they like to exaggerate. The next thing he says is, I'm going to die. You have to give me some of your food. I don't care about my birthright. What good is any of that to a dead man? Which we all know, if he walked in of his own volition, he wasn't about to die, right? But we all know someone like Esau who just likes to exaggerate. And the book even tells us that after he ate, he got up and left and was furious with himself because he just gave up everything because he was hungry. So Isaac is dying, and he wants to make Esau the head of the home. Esau, as we all know by now, is Isaac's favorite, like how Jacob is by far Rebekah's favorite. Remember, Rebekah had this vision, this vision about how Esau would one day serve Jacob. So Rebekah hatches a scheme to trick her husband into giving everything to Jacob. Since Esau is so hairy, they dress Jacob up in Esau's clothes so he kind of smells like Esau. And then they take animal hair and wrap, op- wrap all the open areas on Jacob's body. You don't have dysfunction like this in your family. But they, Rebecca sends Jacob in to see Isaac to get the blessing, to get everything taken care of, so Jacob is in charge. Esau's out hunting to make dinner for his dad so he can come home and go through the ceremony of taking the blessing. But Jacob, in his Esau costume, brings in some of the stew he's made. Now, Isaac, by this time in his life, is so old and so blind that he doesn't even recognize which son is in the room with him until he touches him. So Isaac asks Jacob if it's really Esau. And Jacob lies. He said, yeah, it's me. Go ahead and touch me. He touches the hairy parts. He can still smell Jacob's clothes on him. So Isaac blesses Jacob because he's under the assumption everything is going exactly like I planned it would. But of course, in good theatrical fashion, as soon as Jacob leaves the room, Esau comes in and he's not really sure what just happened. Esau starts to feed his dad like he was supposed to, But Isaac is so furious, the Bible even says he began to shake with anger. Have you ever been so mad at someone that you shook with anger? Isaac knows that as a man of integrity, he can't rightly take away what he just gave to Jacob. So this makes two things. Two things that Jacob has taken from his brother, and now he's lied to his dad. To no one's surprise... Esau wants to now kill Jacob, but really, he really wants to kill Jacob. And Jacob's only choice at this point is to go out on the lamb and run from home. Everything he knows is now memory. Birthright or not, blessing or not, just like Esau said, what good is any of that to a dead man? So Jacob starts running, and he's going and going and going, but he eventually has to stop for the night because he's exhausted is in this barren wilderness, and the best he has to work with to sleep is what's on the ground. This means dirt and rocks. He puts a rock under his 
his head and somehow begins to fall asleep. And once he's out, he has a dream. Now, this dream is quite weird. There's no sufficient way to describe it. What he sees is such a radical, amazing, life-altering vision that it completely changes Jacob at his very core. If you've ever heard of Jacob's Ladder, this is that story. And depending on what translation you have in your hands, it says Jacob saw a ladder or a staircase, and there's no real English word for exactly what the Hebrew says, but it actually looks something like this. Likely. The next picture. It looks something like this. Probably. This word doesn't appear anywhere else in the Bible, and the best that scholars can guess is that it's a borrowed word from other languages like Hebrew. They didn't have a word for what Jacob saw, but what it insinuates is a tremendous step from heaven to earth and earth to heaven. And in this vision, Jacob sees angels coming up and down these steps. See, when Jacob got to this place, he thought that he was alone. And he probably wanted it that way because he's just stolen from his brother and lied to his dad. And the last thing he probably wants is for someone else to be there with him. He's too ashamed. Now, there's a really cool idea that this kind of staircase appeared all throughout uh, other ancient Near Eastern cultures. And in Hebrew, there's no word for this, but they borrowed it from other cultures that did have a word for this. And those cultures had many, many, many gods. And more often than not, they had nothing to do with people. Of course, if you made them mad, then you were in trouble. So you sacrificed and showed how sorry you were and how willing you were to do what it took to make them happy for the time. So if these gods had nothing to do with people, they obviously didn't live among you. The gods were up there. They were up the ladder or at least far away. And to get to earth, in order to, from time to time, to have something to do with us, their stories go that they had these kind of ladders to come down. This is called a ziggurat, by the way. The story goes that gods could come up and down, and these were the transports between heaven and earth. This is even found in the Old Testament, actually. Uh, the prophet Daniel, he's writes one of the books in the Old Testament, and he tells a story that the king of Babylon needed some dreams interpreted for him. So he brings in his sorcerers, his magicians, all these fortune tellers who were supposed to have this relationship with divine things, right? So he says, I have these dreams that are bothering me, keeping me up at night, and I need you to tell me what they mean. But first, so I know you're not feeding me a line, Tell me what the dreams were, and then I'll know that you're serious. And their response is, what you're asking us to do is something only the gods can do, and the gods don't live among men. Basically, the only way you're going to get your answer is to ask the gods, and good luck getting their attention. But at every possible juncture, the authors of the Bible work to correct this misguided view of God. God is not distant. God is transcendent, but transcendence is not the opposite of nearness. Coming up and down the staircase or ladder are God's angels in his dream. The top of the ladder, God is standing there, and he begins to speak to Jacob, and God just repeats the same promises that he's made to Jacob's family, that he's made to Abraham, that he's made to Isaac. And that's it. That's the entirety of Jacob's vision. 
God recounting the promises that he made to Jacob's family. But notice that Jacob's experience of, of this vision did not produce the same worldview that everyone else in the world had about God. Jacob sees God either beside himself or up a ladder, depending on how it reads. But everyone else in the world understands the gods are just elsewhere, and they bother us from time to time. Their home's far away from ours, but Jacob now believes in a God that doesn't behave like that. The first thing that God said is that his name, Yahweh, I am Yahweh, but not only that he's God, but he's the God of people. God says, I'm the God of your father Abraham and Isaac. God is distinct from creation, but he's adoringly in love with it. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and now Jacob. Another odd idea from the, from the old world is that the gods were in a certain place. They couldn't leave where they were. All this meant is that Shelbyville had a patron god, Waldron had a patron god, Morristown, uh, all these different places had a, a patron god. So it wouldn't be outlandish that Jacob had this kind of worldview, because if you grew up in that culture, you, that would form your thinking. But God uses this vision, this experience, to correct Jacob's view and our view as well. So Jacob's on the run. He's hurt his entire family. And the only option he has is to get as far away as possible or risk being killed. What's interesting, though, is that among all the other promises God has just made to Jacob, he promises again that he will return Jacob to this land and make his family here. Now, this is important because that means that God will actually be with Jacob regardless of where he's headed, regardless of what he's running from and where he's going. The one true God is not bound by anything. He's not bound by space and time. He is not put in one place because he created all places. Jacob then even makes it clear that he had this kind of worldview about God. The dream wakes him up, and the first thing he says, surely God is in this place, and I did not know it. One of the most beautiful but underestimated passages in the whole scripture, if you ask me. Surely God is in this place, and I did not know it. In the middle of the night, Jacob has a dream, and it startles him, wakes him up. And in an instant, everything he knew was different. God is not distant. God is in this place. God is here. When such a radical transformation takes place, and your whole thought process, your worldview changes in an instant, somehow it has to be memorialized. It's no longer enough to make it a memory, whether it's by something you do, whatever you might put in your home. You're drawn to make a tangible testimony to what's happened. That's why when you finish school, they hand you a diploma showing your accomplishment, or it used to be the gold watch company gave you when you retired. As a church, we hand out baptism certificates when you get baptized as a symbol of your of your public profession of faith. We also light candles at the beginning of every year. We set up our own memorial that creates a way for us to remember. And we invite you that have lost someone this past year uh, to light a candle for that person. So that every time you see the, this, this table up here, it's not just a sense of nostalgia, but it reorients you and gives you a better perspective. Memorials have a tremendous amount of power. When you come into this place and you're reminded of a candle you lit in memory of someone you love so dearly, you might be prompted to think like that person. 
In the morning when Jacob gets up, he creates a memorial. He takes the rock he used to sleep on, pours oil on it, and renames the place. This is his memorial. He, said, he puts an altar up and calls the place Bethel. Bethel just means the house of God. Surely God is in this place, and I didn't know it, but he knew it, and he was here. Bethel, the house of God. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is not a God confined to a single location. The whole earth is Bethel, the house of God. Jacob responded to God's truth in such a way that he saw no other option but to set up a systematic way of remembering. He would eventually walk past this monument over and over again. And every time he walked past it, he would remember what God had done for him. And it starts with you and me. God has gone through great pains to ensure that we have no other means of thinking about him. He is transcendent, but he's near. In Christ stood the fullness of humanity, fully God and fully man. And so often we behave as though God cares so little for this world, but in the person of Christ, God made it known that he doesn't intend to abandon us, but he fully intends to save us, the whole earth. You and I are to show the world that God has saved it. Even in the midst of evil, in the midst of everything we see and hear in the news, we are to be little Christs in our neighborhood, our neighborhoods. We're to show the world that God doesn't abandon, but he saves. Jacob was a liar and a thief, and even that wasn't enough to make God break his promises. God desires the family, and through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and hopefully you and me, God will do that. God is faithful when we are not. God can be trusted when we cannot. And God cares for us when we don't care for others or ourselves. For Christians, our memorial is the cross. And today we see it everywhere. And it may, over time, lose its weight. But it's important to intentionally remember what the cross memorializes. The cross was carried by Christ to the hill. And then it carried him as he died for each and every one of us. When people were hanged on a cross... It wasn't something done in secret or quietly behind the capital city. When people were hanged on a cross, it was done on the tallest mountain peak on the outskirts of the city so that no matter where you were, people could see it. You knew that Rome had put someone else in their place when you saw another cross being put up. But the compelling nature of the death of Jesus on a cross is that it wasn't final. In the same way the cross memorializes death and the end, the empty tomb memorializes God's power over death and a new creation. So today, the question is presented to you. Are you a memorial to God's goodness? Jacob teaches us that God is present in every room. God is present in every hurt. God is present in the middle of all the messed up places that you and I have been. Christ desires to save you as he is saving the whole world, bringing Christ into your heart, mind, soul, and strength prepares you to be another monument to God's desire for a family. Wait for me, please. Our Heavenly Father, your desire for us is unmatched by anyone else. The life of Jacob is a story that shows us just how far you're willing to go to draw each of us into your family. 
Jacob was smart, so he knew that he had to do something to help him remember how much you loved him and how far you would go to find him. So help us to do the same. To remember how much you love us and seek after us even in the middle of our circumstances. The cross and the tomb are the ultimate memorials to your promises to save those who call you their Savior. In your son's name we pray. Amen.